Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I'm Blake Dean, here with my co-host Aaron Monez, and today we are excited to host author and theologian Dr. Bill Witt. Dr. Bill Witt is an Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Ethics at Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. He has his Bachelor of Arts from Rockmont College and a Master of Arts, where he graduated summa cum laude, hey, from St. Thomas Seminary and a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. His original interest was in historical theology, but he switched to systematics because he felt that his denomination needed more systematic theologians. His research interests are historical and contemporary theology, the relation between medieval and Reformation theology, spiritual theology, and the history of Christian spirituality, theological methodology, philosophical theology, and especially the transformation of classical epistemology and metaphysics by the uniquely Christian doctrines of creation, incarnation, and grace. It's a widespread. He's published many articles and posts many of his writings on his website, and he's the author of the soon-to-be-published Icons of Christ, a biblical systematic theology for women's ordination, which will be released October 30th, 2020. What a credentialed man. And he shows it in the interview. Absolutely. Yeah. What should listeners be listening for, Aaron? Okay. Listeners are going to really have to put on their thinking caps for this one because Dr. Bill takes us to school. But I will tell you this, listeners, this is what you're going to love from this podcast. First of all, if you have ever come across the Second Timothy 2 um, argument mm. or the First Corinthians or Ephesians 5, these classic passages where people are like, well, this is why the church doesn't allow women to be ordained or, you know, creates hierarchies in the home. If you, if you are familiar with these classic arguments and believe that this is how the church has felt and has operated since its beginning— just be prepared to be blown away because he is about to dismantle that. So he takes us all the way back to the beginning and shows us how the early church actually was really countercultural um, and progressive in elevating women in a mm. culture that diminished them. Um, but that all these classic arguments that we have only came into existence in the last few years. And he's going to tell us why. And and this is this is so fascinating. So um, that and also if you've ever gotten the argument, well, can a female represent Christ the way a man can up at the pulpit? Um, he's got an he's got a great uh, answer for that. Or also like yeah. Jesus chose 12 disciples who were men. What about that? He talks about that too. So if these are things you've come across, then this is going to be the episode for you. We hope that you enjoy this interview with Dr. Bill Witt. All right, we are so excited to be here with Dr. William G. Witt, who um, we will be affectionately referring to as Bill throughout this podcast. And um, Bill, could could you just uh, tell some of our listeners just a little bit about yourself? They've already heard uh, your bio, but but how do you see yourself? What What do we need to know? Well, I'm not sure what your the bio told him. Uh, I teach theology at Trinity School for Ministry. I'm a lay systematic theologian. I was raised a Southern Baptist, and at some point um, realized that I didn't fit well there. Uh, I won't go through the entire story. Went to a Roman Catholic seminary and realized I wasn't a Roman Catholic, and during that time became an Anglican. Uh, got my PhD at a place called the University of Notre Dame, and I have lots of interesting background, not all in theology. I was telling Blake 
that I actually did web application programming for a while. And uh, yeah, I'm a very happy layperson uh, in the uh, ACNA Anglican Church of North America. And I love teaching, love my students. Wonderful. Well, we are very excited to get to talk with you today. But as our listeners know, we always like to start with our watch, read, or listen segment. So Blake, what are you watching, reading, or listening to right now? Yeah, so I am embarrassingly reading Harry Potter right now. And I say embarrassingly because I'm like about a decade too late, but I've never read it before. I grew up um, during a time when uh, uh, some of the people that raised me were a bit suspicious of Harry Potter, but I uh, have since in my adulthood taken it upon myself to educate myself in the the wizarding world. And so I am really enjoying it. I'm one book from the end. So I'm breezing through that very, very joyfully. Um, what about you, Aaron? Okay. Yeah. So I have a book too. I'm going to go for the read category. Um, but I feel a little sheepish saying this now after your Harry Potter um, confession. So I'm working on my doctorate as a lot of people know. And so I just started um, Treatise on the Love of God um, by St. Francis, not of Assisi, awesome. the other one, um, D. Sales, um, the, the other St. Francis, <laughs> the the, but it's 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 hefty, but so so good. And I honest, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't heard of it until I started doing research for this doctorate and came across it and had some folks recommend it. So um, so I have to really I have to really dive in. But it's 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 been good. It's been good. So so that's what I'm so that's what I'm reading, Blake Dean. While you're while you're reading Harry Potter, I'll be I'll be enriching myself with uh, tr- things with the word treatise in the title. Bill, what uh, what what are you watching, reading, or listening to these days? Uh, well, I actually did read Harry Potter a long time ago. My wife and I bought each one as it came out. But the fiction I'm reading right now is not something I would care to share. It's not that exciting. Uh, but I am reading Oliver O'Donovan's three-volume uh, Christian Ethics. I don't know if you know who o- mm-hmm. O'Donovan is. Uh, well-known Anglican ethicist. And uh, he's retired, but he finished up by finally putting together uh, his three-volume sort of overview of his ethical approach. And I'm in the middle of volume two right now, which is... Uh, really good and which I would recommend. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to put that on the list. Love that. We always love uh, hearing the things that our guests are, are diving into. Um, I, you know, when we were doing a little bit of research on you and it's, it says on the Trinity website that your list of research interests include historical and contemporary theology, which, you know, that's a, that's a small chunk there. Um, the relation between medieval and Reformation theology, spiritual theology, and the history of Christian spirituality, theological methodology, philosophical theology, especially the transformation of classical epistemology and the metaphysic physics by the uniquely Christian doctrines of creation, incarnation, and grace. So my first question is, um, when do you sleep? Like, when does that does that happen? Is do, yeah, do well, well that sounds out from the rest of us. <laughs> that that sounds much more impressive than it is. Um, so impressive because all of those things are actually there's a way to make them all interrelated. Yes. So um, yes. yeah, I'm a a, a a great fan of Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth. Mm. Uh, they're I think the two most important theologians of the last thousand years or so. Mm-hmm. Those issues are all very much at the heart of their theology. Uh, but I also, I mean, I teach Anglican, a uh, course called the Anglican Way of Theology, and uh, so historical theology ties in with that, as does uh, spirituality, because Anglican uh, theology is very prayer book oriented, but also 
Uh, it's a theology that is connected with things like prayer. Uh, for example, George Herbert, uh, poetry, uh, Herbert, John Donne, sermons, uh, John Donne. Um, so those things actually do tie together. So it's, it's not as if I have to like, now I'm going to do theological methodology. Now I'm going to look at the Reformation. Uh, and also, uh, as a professor, I have a schedule of courses that I have to teach. And I find ways to make my interests sort of like uh, dovetailing with what I'm teaching. Oh, so, I think that's fantastic. Um, yeah. So it's not as it's not as exciting as it, I mean it is exciting, but uh, and I'm also as as many systematic theologians are. I'm a I'm a bit of a a dabbler and amateur in everything, and and I'm not a master of, of any one of these disciplines the way some people are. Um, but I think theology needs people like me who know a little bit about this mm-hmm. and a little bit about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And and we really we're 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 fans of your work. It was a few years ago when. Um, I think I was uh, talking with someone about about some subject related to gender theology. It might have been women's ordination, and they said, "Have you read? Have you read stuff by Dr. Witt? You know, you should really you should really check him out. He's got this website, um, and we'll definitely have a reference to your website in the show notes. Um, but you have written uh, a number of articles, even recently, a number of related articles on the subject of gender theology, specifically women's ordination. Um, and while there are, of course, um, other male scholars who tackle this subject, it's it's not often a priority for for men to study and be um, and inform on this particular subject. So I'm just curious, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to study it and write about that in particular? Yeah, it wasn't really all that uh, interesting or exciting, to tell you the truth. Uh, when I came to Trinity, there was a wonderful uh, female professor on the faculty, a woman named uh, Martha Gilton. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. If you, uh, if you search on YouTube and a few other things, you can find out about her. She was a professor of pastoral theology and an ordained uh, Anglican priest. And she was talking about her frustration, in particular, that nothing had been written reflecting uh, the more sacramental arguments against women's ordination. That if you know the, the discussion among Protestants, there's this whole discussion about complementarianism, but uh, Roman Catholics and Anglo-Catholics in particular are more focused on the issue of theology and particularly the issue of can a female, can a woman, ordained woman represent a male Christ in presiding over the Eucharist. And uh, I, was, I, I was a liturgical minor and um, I also had some professors who were interested in this particular topic. And we had these discussions and uh, she said, you should write this up. And I said, well, no, no, no. I'm a layperson. I'm a man. You should write this up. And Martha said, I'm never going to write this up. Please just write something. So I said, well, I will write a few, maybe an essay or two and put it on my blog. What happened was that what I thought was going to be an essay ended up becoming a lot so, well, and, and eventually turning into a book. And the sad story is that uh, Martha, shortly after, about a year or two after I began writing this, she got cancer and died. So she's one of these wonderful mm-hmm. people who's influenced a lot of folks. But She's not here. Uh, well, she's, I'm, I'm praying that she knows <laughs> what I'm up to. Uh, but I am, uh, yeah, so I, I did put this together. It's being published as a book. Uh, and I'm dedicating it to her at the beginning and to the women's students that I have at Trinity. And so that's basically how it happened. It wasn't that I was some sort of, you know, borderline feminist uh, theologian uh, on the faculty. It's just that this was something that I had the capability to write about and someone asked me to do it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, I actually really love that story and I love the way um, it comes about relationally. I feel like there's a, there's a strong um, 
tapestry of stories like these that I come across a lot when I talk with people about gender theology. And we, we often think of it sort of in these stark and sterile doctrinal senses or, or, or filled with just anger and, and venom and passion. But at the end of the day, there's, there's a lot of us who sort of came by it because of people, because of the people in our lives. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's wonderful. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, well, uh, before I go go on, Blake, do you look like you might have something you want to jump in sure. on? Sure. Um, I wanted to dig in a little bit on, um, I guess, the difference between um, a Protestant opposition to women's ordination and Catholic or Anglo-Catholic um, opposition, and um, maybe the relationship of both of those positions of opposition to the historic tradition. You write a lot about that, and I'd love to get your thoughts and also get our listeners to hear your thoughts. On yeah, that. I mean, it's one of those really interesting things is that um, the, the, both the people who are in favor of women's ordination and the people who are opposed to it often don't know a whole lot about the, the history of the theology, uh, but also don't realize that there is a massive difference between the Catholic position uh, and what's called the complementarian position. Uh, historically, and again, I think I did a little research, it's easy to find this out. Uh, there was a historical reason why theologians thought that women should be ordained. And um, it shows up again and again from the very beginning, beginning with people like Tertullian, people like John Chrysostom, Thomas Aquinas, they all basically say the same thing, which is that women are not very smart. Um, <laughs> they're emotionally unstable um, and they're subject to temptation. And, and those are three good mm -hmm. reasons why women shouldn't be ordained. Uh, and, and that appears over and over and over again. Now, there, it, it's not that they don't care about other things. So certainly they, they love to cite scripture. Uh, so 1 Timothy 2.12 is a major verse that gets cited over and over again, where Paul says, uh, I'm not allowing women to teach or exercise authority over men. I won't go into what that's all about. Uh, but the, 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 the regular theological argument that comes up again and again has to do with uh, basically the inferiority of women. There's a wonderful conversation between uh, Boswell and Johnson, where, uh, Bos where Boswell says, I, think, I forget which one, I think maybe it had been Johnson who said it, but he said that he uh, saw a woman, he was amazed that he saw a woman preaching and he compared it to uh, something like a dog walking on its hind legs. That it was amazing that it could be done at all. Wow. And even uh, Richard Hooker in the Anglican tradition, when he talks about why it is that uh, women have to be given away uh, by their fathers, it's because of the imbecility of their nature means that they always need to be guided by someone. So that's the historical mm -hmm. tradition. Uh, what happened in the mid 20th century is that there be, uh, a shift took place in the culture as a whole, uh, affirming um, the equality of women, uh, lots of historical reasons for that. Uh, and all of the mainline churches basically sort of went along with that. And it is interesting that those who are opposed to the ordination of women will emphatically deny uh, that they do not believe that women are equal with men. That's not what we believe. It's not our, our, but then when they say they claim to be simply embracing the tradition, they're ignoring that that's not the reason the tradition primarily gave. Uh, and what has happened is that there have been two different responses as to why women cannot be ordained, and it reflects the theology of the various churches. So among the, the evangelical theologians who call themselves complementarians, uh, they're actually closer to the historic tradition, and the tradition did focus on uh, hierarchy and authority. And what they argue is that men and women are equal, but that God has created these special roles. And it's the uh, role of women to always be uh, in submission to uh, men and that women should not teach uh, men. And because of that, they cannot preach. 
The Catholic position is actually very different. Uh, it's interesting that John Paul II, for example, uh, has come out very strongly in favor of the equality of women. He actually, uh, his exegesis of Genesis 2 says that the subordination of women was a consequence of the fall. When he talks about Ephesians mm. 5, he says, yes, Paul says that wives should submit to their husbands, but this submission is a mutual submission. And he actually says there's a difference between Christ and the church and marriage in that Christ and the church. The church always submits to Christ, but the submission in marriage is mutual. So at least in theory today, Roman Catholics, if you take seriously what Pope John Paul II said, should be egalitarians. But the Catholic argument uh, picks up on a notion that when the priest celebrates the Eucharist, uh, he has to physically resemble the male Christ because the priest is operating in, in, what, in Latin, what is called in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And the language of in persona Christi goes back to Thomas Aquinas' own theology of ordination. But Aquinas isn't saying anything about women's sex when he talks about that. That's not an issue for him. Uh, and in fact, Aquinas, when he talks about, uh, he says it is in baptism uh, that all Christians resemble Christ, uh, which is mm -hmm. really interesting. So in, in both cases, you have a shift from the tradition without recognizing that it is a shift. So what I try to, I haven't yet succeeded anyone who is, um, does not believe in the ordination of women, but I try to convince them that, you know, uh, your position is no more traditional than ours. Um, you simply, you do embrace um, the theology of equality, good for you. Uh, you don't think that women are imbeciles anymore, wonderful. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you've had to come up with these new theologies, either the theology of gender roles or the theology that only a a male priest can represent a, a male Christ that are not part of the historical tradition. So yeah, that was a short summary of. Thank you. No, that's, that's great. You just don't see that word imbecility really just used anymore. Like, like, you know, the, you just don't catch that in the journals these days. Not, not very that, often. That, yeah. so. <laughs> It'd be much easier to just recognize these things. If only we were just really like went back to the vocab. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that, that summary is, is so much, I mean, Blake and I have been reading these things, preparing for this talk with you. And I, I think you just, you just n knocked it out of the park on that, on that summary, because so much of what we've learned from you um, goes back to this, this revisiting church history and understanding this sort of latent but pervasive doctrine of the inferiority of women. And, and to use the word ontological for our listeners who, who may not be familiar with it, the idea that that women are inferior just because they are women, not not because of a certain behavior, but but coming from just having been born a woman, you just are inferior. So when we when we use that word to to help out um, those who may not be familiar with it, um, but this idea that this doctrine, while while not not necessarily um, in in the you know, foundational tenets of the church has been woven in throughout the ages for such a long time. I mean, only in recent modernity do we see this shift away from it. And of course, I've never met anyone who would say that that idea of the ontological inferiority of women is, is a good one. So we don't embrace it anymore, but there are so many effects of it. And the fact that we don't recognize how strong it was in the tradition um, really reshapes the conversation when we talk about gender theology and, and ordination of women. So, so I appreciate uh, the work that you're doing to, to help us go back to that history and understand um, what was really being said during that time. Well, thank you. One of the things I was wondering if you could expound on a little bit is um, I am curious 
as to and I've got and I've got some of my own thoughts on this, but but they're they're merely assumptions um, that the doctrine of ontological inferiority is informing um, some conversations today, especially in complementarian theology. You made kind of a link that that some of that hierarchical um, idea of, of women and men, um, even though there's language given to equality, that, that sort of flows out of that. And I would be interested to see, because um, I think it would be surprising for for folks who maybe grew up in a complementarian tradition to, to get a glimpse at maybe how much of that language and how much of those ideas are actually coming from this idea of female inferiority is, I don't know if I'm asking the question well, but um, is, do you see like ripple effects in the way we, we talk about gender theology today that come from this, that we may not even recognize or realize? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I don't see, I don't see it explicitly. I mean, the one area where I do see it rather implicitly uh, is the notion of gender roles. Um, that is just sort of passed off lightly. Uh, but one never hears an actual rational explanation as to why these gender roles should exist. Or, you know, and, and one of the things I found that gets people really angry is what you point out that the gender roles only work one way. So men can, in fact, be lay people, but men can also be priests. Men can be students, but men can also teach. Both men and women can be both parents. Uh, but it's the, specifically, it's the women who you can, women can be students, at least in theory, they can never teach, although they can teach children. Uh, in adolescence, women can be lay people. Women can't be so. I, I do. I do see that happening. Uh, and I confess, uh, I grew up in a complementarian denomination, but uh, complementarianism did not exist yet when I left. Mm. Uh, and so, a lot of what I've heard about complementarianism has been secondhand. Uh, but what I have heard, I, I have heard, you know, sort of what goes on, sort of behind closed doors. And it was interesting, even as I was reading possible things you might ask about. I discovered just this morning in Christianity Today, a blog forum uh, by uh, Ed uh, Stetzer. Mm -hmm. And this was a recent uh, article called Complementarianism in Closed Rooms. And this is about a Facebook group, uh, particularly talking about, uh, again, I, know, I don't know these women as well as I should, but they're not my particular tradition. Beth Moore is one of them. Uh, but then another uh, woman who just, Amy, Amy Bird. I don't know if you know those yeah. names. Yeah. And uh, apparently in a private uh, Facebook group, uh, Reformed uh, Orthodox Presbyterians and uh, another very conservative Presbyterian denomination, uh, just the kind of conversations that were going on recently in light of the recent book that came out by um, Amy Bird. Uh, and I'll just quote some of the things. Um, I wish her husband loved her enough to tell her to shut up. Uh, why can't these women just take their shoes off and make us some sandwiches? Um, so that kind of thing still exists. Uh, where I found it in my own tradition, Anglicans don't tend to focus so much on uh, whether women can teach or not, uh, but the whole sacramental questions. So there have been many mm -hmm. occasions when I've had co in private conversation, uh, I've heard uh, almost always men say, uh, in, when they find out what I'm interested in, say, oh, I don't believe in women priestesses. Uh, and the word priestess has all kinds of connotations, which I think are deliberate, um, which are highly inappropriate. I mean, I think there's this, these sort of assumptions, well, priestesses are pagan women who invo were involved in various questionable activities, um, which apparently, when you actually look at the tr uh, historical tradition, that doesn't seem to be the case. 
but again, I think that there's a certain amount of assumption there that women who want to be ordained are engaging in uh, questionable behavior that, that um, is inappropriate. Uh, for women to engage. And occasionally even, I mean, uh, I teach at a seminary where you have, uh, we, we welcome women. Uh, we have women on the faculty and uh, the faculty in general approve of women's ordination, although there are one or two who seem not to. Uh, but occasionally I hear, one doesn't hear things directly, but occasionally I hear from the women students that there are male students uh, who question why they're even at seminary. Why should you be studying here? Mm. So um, yeah, I think that it is at least implicitly uh, there it's implicitly part of the culture, um, which is unfortunate. Yes, no, I, I I appreciate that response, and 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 I appreciate you also citing the Christianity Today article because that I recently came across that, and I had the pleasure of meeting Amy Bird um, a few years ago when she came actually through Rome um, to speak at a local church, and uh, it's unfortunately familiar the the things cited in this these private um, Facebook. Facebook rooms and uh, in in the stories I hear from different women, it seems like even even when we have uh, friends in the faith who who champion um, the the sort of gathering of both men and women to mutually come together and link arms up for the work of the gospel, there is this undertone and this um, this implicit. Uh, sort of brush off that often happens at, at, at best and, and sometimes very explicit and demeaning at worst. Um, but in some ways, I think the work that you're doing, especially about understanding the history and understanding how for so long we held captive this idea of inferiority um, is so helpful for us to, to look back and dismantle and understand there are latent tendencies and, and generational brokenness and sin in us that we don't always even acknowledge where it came from or, or, or what sort of things we've inherited that need to be spoken over and repented of and, and re-examined. Um, so I, I at least believe that this work is, is contributing to us moving the needle on these conversations. Um, but I, I also, this actually happened to me when I was in class one time, um, at Trinity and it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good story. So I feel, feel good sharing it here on the podcast, but, um, we were in a class and we were talking about, uh, the church being the bride of Christ. And we were in a systematics class and we were talking about this and I had a, um, a, a friend and a colleague who was sitting nearby me and he raised his hand and in earnest said, you know, this is all so new. I never really thought about the implications of, of the idea of the church being the bride and, you know, sort of the imagery that goes along with that. He says, but in my church, I have a lot of like men, like really manly men, you know, like firefighters and construction workers. And I just don't think they're going to buy this. I don't think they're going to feel comfortable using female imagery to describe them as the bride of Christ. Is there, is there any way we can sort of man it up a little bit for them? <laughs> and, and these, again, very sincere, not out of any, any malicious intent of any kind. And, and I was so, so happy because there was the professor and other people in class who, who got to talk about this, but it reminded me of, of a quote um, from one of your recent articles that says, can a woman lead the church in worship and act in persona Christi? One might better ask whether a man can lead the church in worship and act as the church's representative in persona ecclesia, and and the idea that that in understanding ourselves as the um, as the 
bride and the body of, of Christ. Uh, there's all this this imagery, both of, of male and femaleness, woven in. Um, and it's just funny to me to see some of the modern clashes, not so much with, with having to deal with like a male Jesus, but but having to deal with female imagery as the bride for, for dudes in the congregation. So um, so it was it was actually a very wonderful memory from from my time at Trinity. Um, but it does raise some interesting questions when we talk about this and some of the pushback we get and what that reveals about how we feel about men and women. On that quote, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the sacramentalist argument against women's ordination and perhaps your response to it, if the position is how can a woman represent a male Christ. Um, I wonder what your response to that. Uh, well, again, that's one of these things where it's actually really interesting to know something about the tradition. Uh, in, the his, in the history of uh, Western, well, both Western and Eastern theology, there's very little discussion of what it is that the, I'll use the word priest, I realize that some uh, uh, evangelicals are uncomfortable with that term, uh, presbyter, but in the early, uh, in the first thousand years of the church, there's not a whole lot of discussion about what is the, the role of the priest. Insofar as it is discussed at all, the understanding is that the priest uh, sort of is acting on or representing uh, the church. The first theologian who seems to have addressed the question of the person of the priest acting in persona Christi in the person of Christ uh, seems to have been Thomas Aquinas. And this uh, seems to have basically, uh, it's funny how things can happen incidentally. Uh, Thomas was so much influenced by Aristotle and uh, Aristotle mm. makes a distinction between form and matter. And Aquinas was saying, well, what is the form? When you look at the sacraments, the form of the sacraments are um, the words. And the matter of the sacraments are um, the physical matter. So when he was looking at baptism, he said, well, the, the form of um, the words connected with baptism are I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the matter is, is water. Uh, when he looked at the question of the Eucharist, he said, well, what are the words? What are the absolute minimum words you have to have to have a valid Eucharist? And he said, well, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. So you have to have those words. And if you have those words and you have bread and wine, you have a valid Eucharist, just as if you have those words and you have water, you have a va valid baptism. And so then Aquinas said in that light, when um, when the priest says those words, he is acting in persona Christi. He is acting in the place of Christ. Uh, that turned into a whole Western theology of what happens during the Eucharist. Well, the priest says these words. The problem with that in terms of the history of liturgy is that if you look at Eucharistic prayers, and um, Anglicans will know what this is about, is assume Lutherans and Catholics and other people will be scratching their heads. But the prayers always represent the the presbyter, the pastor, the priest, as praying a prayer on behalf of the entire congregation. It begins, we, and then of course, the, the words of institution, the story of the Last Supper is part of that, but then it also include, uh, concludes with, uh, in the traditional prayers, the invocation of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would send your spirit to descend on these elements to make them become the body and blood of Christ for your people, etc., etc. So if you actually take the prayer as a prayer, the presbyter, priest, celebrate is speaking on behalf of the congregation. So the priest is actually acting, what's called in Latin, in persona ecclesiae, in the person of the church. Uh, and there actually has been historically a great debate between the Eastern Orthodox, who said that the priest is acting in the person of the church, and the 
uh, Roman Catholic Western tradition that said the priest is acting uh, in the mm -hmm. person of Christ. And that has actually been one of the great areas of conflict between the East and the West. Well, that was all sort of very interesting in terms of Eastern Western relations until the Roman Catholic Church, uh, I think, suddenly realized in the mid 20th century, well, we, we no longer want to say uh, that women are inferior, uh, which is what, in a nice way, Aquinas had said that. Uh, and so they needed a new argument and they basically went back and said, well, Aquinas says that the priest acts in the person of Christ. Um, there's apparently one reference to this that I came across recently in Bonaventure, uh, where there's a, he says this in a paragraph, but this was picked up and said, well, if the priest acts in persona, uh, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, the priest has to be meal. Uh, and, and so that's where that argument came from. Uh, mm -hmm. Interestingly, the Orthodox, who should not be happy with that at all, um, suddenly ended up picking it up and saying things that the priest represents Christ in a way that Orthodox theology would have been very unhappy with. I mean, I'm willing to say both. Uh, I think that uh, both traditions do say both, that the priest both represents the church uh, and the priest uh, represents Christ. But if you say that, then you have to be willing to say that, well, then there's no reason why a woman could not be a priest or a presbyter mm. as much as a man could. That uh, if, a, if a man can represent a male Christ when he says the words of institution, uh, certainly then uh, a woman could uh, represent the church when she speaks uh, the Eucharistic prayer in the name of the entire church. Yeah. Um, but also I would say about the, the, the Catholic argument focusing on the person of Christ, I'd say that's a misrepresentation of how it is that the, uh, that the person who's leading the church in the Eucharistic prayer represents Christ. That when we look at scripture, particularly I think of uh, Paul in Second uh, Corinthians uh, when he talks about, he's talking about apostles, but he says that we carry this treasure, meaning Christ, in earthen vessels, or in an earthen, and, and he says that the way in which uh, the apostles represent Christ is through suffering, uh, mm. through sharing in Christ, basically crucifixion. That's not the way I think that people are thinking about representing Christ when they use that imagery. And I think that, you know, in the, the real way in which scripture talks about how the church uh, represents Christ is by uh, what uh, Michael Gorman, New Testament scholar, calls cruciformity, by entering into Christ's mm. suffering. And I, I think that that is a significant role, significant role of clergy. Uh, but I don't think it, again, it is, it's not unique to, uh, to men uh, or to women, uh, that all Christians are called to uh, be servants of one another, but also to follow Christ uh, and to take up our cross mm. in that way. In a similar vein, I have a similar question. I was telling Aaron before you um, jumped on the call that often as I'm talking and wrestling and asking questions of um, people that I really respect that perhaps um, land somewhere differently than I do on women's ordination, oddly, the response I get um, more often than not is about how well, Jesus clearly only chose um, male apostles, and so that clearly means... Um, when paired with First Timothy 2, this is giving us a precedent for male leadership. I wonder, I, I was reading um, one of your essays today where you um, explored that concept. Um, and I'd love to hear, maybe if you could summarize your argument in that, but I recommend reading. We'll put the essay in the show notes so that our readers can follow your moves more closely. Yeah, uh, well, the Roman Catholic Church does make that argument as do Anglo-Catholics that Jesus had 12 male apostles. He called only... Uh, 12 apostles. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of, I mean, there, there are a couple of questions that, that go on there. One most significant is why did Jesus call 
12 apostles. Mm. Why didn't he call 13? <laughs> Why didn't he call a, a, you know, a, a baker's dozen, 24? Well, uh, if you know anything about you know, biblical symbolism, there's a historical reason why Jesus called 12 apostles. The New Testament makes clear that the, 12, that the church corresponds to the new Israel. Uh, it's a major argument in Paul, Romans 9 through 11. Uh, the church is a new Israel. Clearly, the reason why Jesus chose 12 apostles is because the original 12 tribes of Israel uh, were 12 in number. Uh, but Jesus also didn't choose any Korean apostles, uh, no Greek apostles. They were all Jewish. Uh, and again, so all of this has to do with uh, the topology of the church being the new Israel. And how many, why are there 12 tribes? Mm-hmm. If you know your Old Testament, it's because Jacob had 12 sons. And so the apostles uh, clearly are representing the 12 uh, as the 12 tribes of Israel, J- Jacob's 12 original sons. So there's a typological role there. But if we're going to say, well, then, because the apostles were male, therefore clergy have to be male, then the logical argument would be, well, then all clergy would have to be Jewish as well, and we could only have no more than 12 clergy at a time. <laughs> and, and it also, I mean, it does seem to be the case when you look at the New Testament, uh, whatever the role of the original 12 apostles were in the New Testament, the, the role of presbyter, uh, deacon, those are the two main roles, that seem, uh, presbyter, bishop, deacon in the New Testament, they don't seem to be directly connected to the roles of the apostles. They seem to be a, a distinct mm-hmm. office. Um, so yeah, that's all sort of a quick answer to, so no one's going to actually buy yeah. my book now because they're going to hear the podcast. <laughs> no, no, we, we want everyone to go buy this book. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, and to, and to be fair, what, what you don't know is until you actually read um, Bill's essays, you realize that he is, is graciously summarizing and giving us a, a layman's terms for, for all of this, but it's, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna bake your noodle. It's, it's some good stuff. So we really highly recommend reading the essays. I wonder if you could talk about your upcoming book. Um, it's called Icons in Christ, Icons of Christ. Right. Yeah. Right. Did you? Yeah. Well, that was the chapter that was, um, that was chosen. Uh, and and one of the reasons why that chapter was chosen, uh, it was sort of deliberately playing on the whole notion of um, the minister acting in the person of Christ, but uh, but also um, sort of deliberately sub, subversionist in the sense that, um, you know, my argument throughout the book is the way that clergy represent Christ uh, is by first uh, representing the church uh, and the church is the bride of Christ, but also uh, this role of mutual submission and servitude, uh, which all uh, all people can, all, all members of the mm. church should be uh, partaking in. Um, yeah, so the book uh, is being published by Baylor University Press, uh, and it will be coming out uh, in November. I'm thrilled uh, that it's coming out. They've been really, once they accepted it, it was very, very quick. But uh, I will continue to write on women's ordination, and I've, as you may have noticed, I've been doing quite a few things recently. So that, that that's in short. Yeah, I, I don't know what else I can say about the book. It's coming. I know we we just love giving our guests a, an opportunity to to 
tell our listeners how they can follow them and 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 know you know about them. When we do, we encourage everyone to 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 buy the book. And your blog is full of a number of essays. Now, of course, there's some significant ones on women's ordination, but um, you have uh, so many wonderful thoughts to contribute to. So we just we just recommend we just recommend you follow Dr. Billy. This is it's 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 well worth um, your personal education to to read uh, the stuff that he's putting out there. Um, it has been it's been wonderful talking with you today. And uh, Blake, do you have any anything to add before we sort of wrap it up? I don't other than thank you so much for contributing um, your thoughts today, but also on your blog. And I'm very much looking forward uh, to buying and reading your book. And um, I have been a grateful, but rather new student of your writing. So I'm excited to get to continue that journey through your upcoming book. Thrilled to meet both of you and had a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. I just have to say, I was present for that conversation, and I'm going to go back and listen to it four times because it's so rich. And reading his writings, too, that are on his website, um, and I'm really pumped about his upcoming book. Yes. But it's just like so rich and dense in the best and most holy sort of ways. I think the thing that is so compelling to me is just the simple fact that the quote-unquote traditional argument doesn't have a stake on the historical argument because yeah. the historical argument is the ontological subjugation of women. Yes. Which we all now reject. Yeah. Um, like, I think it's interesting, even like those who are really vocal, like a Piper or a Grudem that are really vocal yeah. about um, women's uh, submission would have worked really hard to separate themselves from ontological subjugation because it's not in vogue. Um, but I loved Dr. Witt's argument, and I think he's just, what a brilliant man. Oh, gosh. I think this is such a linchpin for me because um, the idea that for so long the church really diminished women because they believed that they were inferior, like created inferior to men, um, that to me explains so much about the kind of tension and the issue that comes down to gender theology, and we're seeing echoes of this. We're seeing like reverberations, and you're right. It's like these people would separate themselves and say, no, 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 we would never say that women are inferior. And yet the arguments that exist today are the mm. are sort of the ripple effects and kind of the carryovers from that idea. And until the church deals with this, until the church deals with its history yeah. of, of, of inferiority, um, not just with, with women, of course, there's lots of people we believe to be inferior. Um, but until we reckon with this, this is going to be huge. So I think for our pursuit of unpacking gender theology, this is just one of those, this is one of those game changers. It's a gift. Yeah. It's a gift. I also think including traditions outside of your typical Protestant mainline mm, yeah. is super helpful because we obviously obviously exist in a cloud of witnesses and in a communion of saints, even though that makes Protestants nervous. <laughs> um, but like to really like hear and engage even in part with our Catholic brothers and sisters concerns about gender theology, I, at least for me, complicates my vision because it makes me go, oh, we're not all making the same arguments. So a Catholic would make a very different argument for why a woman shouldn't be a priest. Um, but I appreciate that he addressed that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So so this is, yes, listeners, go back and listen to it again and again, because Dr. Bill is just so smart that, that sometimes it just takes a while for it to sink in. But truly, the message is outstanding. I'm embarrassed about how long it took me to realize that this was 
happening in church history to the effect that it was. It, I mean, I've, I've, I've been a Christian a long time, and I've been to like school a couple times for it, and and I just didn't know this part of history and how um, how prominent it was. Also, the man just blew through all of our questions in the first 20 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, guys, this is one of our shortest podcasts, but like dense. 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 So listen again and pre-order his book, which is coming out in October. It's called Icons of Christ, A Biblical Systematic Theology for Women's Ordination. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You can leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use. We love hearing your feedback and also would love to connect with you. Um, also, if you're really drinking the Kool-Aid, we would love for you to check out our Patreon account. Um, on this, you'll receive early released podcasts, exclusive footage, special conversations Aaron and I have. Um, and varying additional content from your favorite co-host. So you should go check that out. Um, and I'm Blake Dean with my co-host, the Reverend Aaron Monez. And our fabulous producer, Bailey Dingley, makes this all possible. We are Mutuality Matters. Thank you so much for listening.